0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Ed Moncada is the founder and CEO of Blockfolio. In this conversation, we talk about how Ed is a big poker player, why he started Blockfolio, how it's become one of the top apps in the crypto space, and Ed's views on governance. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Before we get started, I want to talk about one of our sponsors, The Grove. The Grove is a full-service creative and design agency who understands that a brand isn't just a logo, it's the entire essence of who a company is. They take a broad and holistic view of their clients' businesses to ensure the resulting brand experience is a perfect representation of who they are, what they stand for, and why they do what they do. If you're trying to look fresh and fly in the crypto space, you've got to check out thegrove.co backslash pomp. Again, that's thegrove.co backslash pomp. Go light up the servers and let them know who we are. If you shoot me a tweet on Twitter, right after you've done it, I'll drop you some fire emojis and we'll have some fun. we've got ed here super excited uh thank you very much for coming sir uh thanks so much for having me for inviting me out here to do this absolutely um all right you got a a wild background a lot of people don't know uh, about the poker days before uh, crypto um maybe just give us a little bit of a history lesson before we jump into all the uh, crypto
1: stuff oh <laughs> yeah in uh 2001 i got introduced to poker this is actually kind of a wild story so uh no nobody plays poker and it's not wild. <laughs> like you gotta have some wild stories if you're a professional poker player. It's how I get how I was introduced to it is actually pretty funny. I, I used to be really, really good friends with Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos. Okay. And uh, you know, I'd say he was one of my four or five best friends. And we were coming back from a snowboarding trip uh in uh in Lake Tahoe, and he was like, Hey, I think you should uh come play poker with me. I think you'd be really good at it. And at the time I had a startup that eventually, you know, folded, uh, but you know, I was living up in the Bay area and, uh, the first few times I would say the first, probably like dozen times I went to go play poker, Tony would call me up and, uh, he was in San Francisco. I was in the East Bay and, uh, we'd go play at this small casino called Casino San Pablo uh, near Berkeley. And it's not there anymore. But anyway, that's how I got introduced to poker. Uh, next thing, you know, I was like fascinated with it. I mean, we were playing like tiny stakes 100 200 buy-in games um uh, and i i kind of you know that startup i was working on at the time shut down and and i was uh you know, i think at the time i might have been uh mid-20s and uh uh just you know I'd, I'd seen that there were professional poker players in the casino and i you know it was like i think maybe i can do this so i started uh uh, dedicating myself and studying the game and, uh, playing tiny little tournaments, you know, $50 tournaments worked my way up. Uh, next thing you know, it was a couple hundred dollar tournaments. Next thing, you know, a few years later, it was probably four years into it. uh, uh I was playing, you know, large tournaments, you know, 5,000, $10,000 buying tournaments going, playing at the world series consistently. Uh, and yeah, ended up becoming a, a poker professional for, from 2001 until, uh, roughly 2010. Okay. So l- let's go to, uh, the world series of poker. Cause I think a lot of people have heard that before.
0: They've got no clue. Like this is the the super bowl or, or the world series of, uh, poker literally. Um, what does that entail?
1: Yeah. So, uh, every year in Vegas, um, you have, uh, you know, the best poker players is the, the Rio casino now. And they, they basically host, uh, you know, Back then, it was like sixty different poker tournaments, all sorts of different kinds of poker. Whether it was Omaha, No Limit Texas Hold'em, Pot Limit Hold'em, and uh, and you ha- you would have the best poker players from all around the world show up to Vegas for a period of about a month, uh, maybe month and a half, and uh, play these tournaments every day and just try to see who's best at different different size buy-ins, different type, style of poker. And uh, and and anybody who won one of the tournaments would would receive a what was called a World Series of Poker bracelet. And uh, uh, that was sort of it was coveted. It was similar to like a, you know maybe like a Super Bowl ring. You know maybe like you know sixty or seventy people a year got one of these. And so I happened to get you know really fortunate. Um, you know uh, in two thousand and five, I played the two thousand pot limit hold'em event, and uh, and I won the event. And- so you are the first World Series of
0: World Series of Poker bracelet holder that's ever been on the podcast. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks. I mean, it was a lot easier to win them back then. These days, you know, like the edge has gotten, uh, you know, sucked out of it. There's a lot of players, uh, you know, there's so much more information, you know, tutorial videos on how to play. Like, you know, people have really kind of like solved the game so much more than it was back then. Uh, so I feel like, uh, I feel like I had it a little bit easier. That's okay. It, so, listen, you still got the bracelet, right? That's right. Well, <laughs> technically I don't. I gave it to my dad for Father's Day that, that year that I won it. Oh, awesome. He probably loved that. Yeah, he's pretty stoked on it. Um, all right. So, and then uh, how do you go from professional poker player to crypto? Um, so, yeah, let me see here. So, in 2010, uh, in 2006 is actually kind of where things changed in poker. They, they passed the UIGEA law. Uh, which which basically prohibited financial institutions from moving money in, in the US from moving money in and out of the, the, the gambling industry uh, online gambling sites and uh, and and it was sort of like overnight they, they pulled the rug out of the base of players that were in poker that were there for entertainment and I started seeing the writing on the wall like wow poker's gonna online poker is gonna get tougher uh, I need to start looking for other things to do uh, it's funny I'll circle back to that those laws later that were pretty Important in me discovering uh, Bitcoin or understanding it, and so in 2010, uh, you know, I helped start a social gaming company uh, called Unveil Games. We're you know intending to build games on social games on Facebook, and around 2011, Facebook kind of changed their newsfeed policies that were very uh, that you know adversely hurt. They, They they basically hurt. Uh, a lot of the small development companies creating games on Facebook, and so we had to shut down in 2012 as a result of this. So in 2012, uh, a friend of mine um, had launched a online Bitcoin poker site called Seals with Clubs. I might have launched it maybe in 2011, but 2012 I became aware of it. And then in early you know 2013, after seeing him post a bunch of uh, uh, kind of like uh, social media comments about it. I, I reached out to him. I'm like, hey, let me uh, let me put a Bitcoin on your Bitcoin poker site. Let me try out one of these Bitcoin things and uh, and see what I can do with it on your site. And uh, they were fairly easy games because at that time, very few people were aware of, of, of Bitcoin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I think a lot of the players that were on his site were these guys that were like really early in investors in bitcoin and had a bunch of bitcoin to blow because they were pretty soft pretty easy games. So I got on there in I believe it was like, you know, Q1 of 2013, uh, three I put one bitcoin on the site. I bought it off him for about I think it might have been like $90 at the time. Might have been March or April of 2013 and uh 3 months later at a uh, 150 bitcoins and uh you know, it was like worth 15 grand at the time probably. And I decided I was like, all right, well, Gonna cash out like you know two thirds of this, and forty eight hours later, it hit my bank account. And you know, remember how I was talking about the UIGEA laws mm-hmm. and made it difficult to move money in and out of gambling gambling sites? Well, there's sort of this like shadow, uh, uh, um, kind of like um, sh- shadow industry that was moving money out of online gambling sites after those laws came into place. And it would prior prior to me discovering Bitcoin. Like I kind of seen this environment where it would like take up to two weeks to cash out of an online poker site because it was like you know illegal to do in the United States. Yep. And when I cashed out with Bitcoin and sent it to my Coinbase, and like literally forty eight hours later, it hit my Chase account. You know, I, I wasn't getting some funky check from the Middle East or something from some LLC. Um, that was when the aha moment happened, and I was like, wait, what just what did I just touch? Like this. Like nascent technology that nobody's ever heard of, just circumvented like U.S. government efforts to control their money, and that was you know where where I realized like I should really kind of start looking into this, uh, and kind of you know did what I think a lot of people do when they first really start to understand like the you know significance that that Bitcoin kind of brings, and I spent the next three months just studying everything I could about about like you know blockchain technology, um, you know kind of understanding, you know, the two big questions I had about about Bitcoin at that time, you know, when I when I kind of realized that, I was like, are governments going to be able to shut this down? Right. And is there a base, like a floor of demand that exists for this thing? And those were the kind of the, the two things I was thinking about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I realized like it's 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 given its decentralized nature, you know, I was familiar with like, you know, torrent networks. And realized you couldn't know, shut those down then i was like okay well it's going to take you know global collusion of governments to like shut bitcoin down mm-hmm. uh, and then uh i started reading articles about how in i think it was argentina at that time in 2013 some people were selling condos for bitcoin because they'd made it illegal to sell con- condos for us dollars and uh and and i realized wow like to us this is super risky we might lose like 50 on this but like there are countries in the, all over the world right now where this is like a haven Mm-hmm. Where this is going to protect them from like you know the, the irresponsible governments or their corrupt governments that are going to like drive the value of their dollar down to zero or something, right? And then I was like, oh wow, this is really interesting. Now I really want to. I really want because it's almost into
0: it. like a, a Venn diagram, right? Um, or, or one of these like things where you've got uh, you need some sort of stability. Right, you need some sort of uh, non censorability or, or uh, uh, the inability to seize it, um, but then you also need access to it, right? So, mm-hmm. like the the example that I always use is like there's actually a lot of Venezuelans who wish that they could hold U.S. dollars. It's either mm-hmm. really hard, it's really dangerous, or they are precluded through regulations or fear, mm-hmm. right, from getting those U.S. dollars. So what's the next best thing? Well, maybe the euro, right? But again, really hard, really dangerous, blah, blah, blah whatever. And so what can they access in a very easy way um, and also has some better stability than what they have as their native currency, right? And when you kind of look, where's the overlap of all of those things? Bitcoin ends up being one of the most accessible, least- seizable, you know, more
1: stable currencies available to these people. And I think that's why we're seeing the adoption. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, least seizable is interesting, too. I mean, it's like Bitcoin's like having, you know, Swiss bank account in your pocket. It's interesting. You know, I mean, there's there's so many interesting things. I mean, like, I'm still like a student of it. Like, I'm still like every day. I feel like I'm like learning something new about like crypto or Bitcoin where I'm just like, oh, my God, this blows my mind. Like, I can't. I didn't, you know i'm like so i'm so all in in on it for so many years now and i feel like i'm still like learning new things that are happening that are they're that like really interesting to me about you know the crypto space But for sure so how do you go from
0: uh you know bitcoin the online poker to uh dash and maybe talk a little bit
1: about kind of what you guys did there yeah so dash was uh you know the 2000 the environment in 2013 2014 you know these there was you know to kind of like, paint, paint a little picture about it back then. I mean, there was probably what, like 200 cryptocurrencies at the time? It was so much smaller than it is today. And and back then, a lot of these projects, like, they would kind of announce themselves on Bitcoin Talk, uh, was the forum that everybody was using to find out about, like, the new coins mm-hmm. that were launching. And, uh, and, you know, these teams were tiny. It wasn't like it is today, where, like, you know, hey, we're going to raise $30 million, you know, and have an ICO or whatever, or SAFT. No. Uh, back then, it was like, you know the communities would freak out if the the core development team was saying that they were going to take three percent of the tokens mm-hmm. <laughs> that were mm-hmm. eventually going to be minted, and uh, if you if you did that, you know your community would be up in arms. But so it was like usually small group, you know, maybe like half a dozen or a dozen guys that were working on these things. And uh, Dash back then it was called Darkcoin, and and so I was you know scouring Bitcoin Talk kind of looking for new use cases of blockchains, um, and you know. I was seeing like a lot of different forks with like some kind of technical, uh, you know, advancement. You know, might be a faster Bitcoin, and then uh, I saw one called Dartcoin, and uh, you know, it was the first anonymous cryptocurrency. And they were I think back then they were using CoinJoin technology, mm-hmm. and and I thought it was really interesting. And I was, you know, I'd heard rumors about uh, BitLicense in early 2014. That's the New York regulation. And I was like, wow, you know, this is really gonna like, you know, piss off a lot of the early, you know, liber- libertarian adopters of Bitcoin. And I was like, I think, I think this like anon cryptocurrency is gonna be something that people gravitate towards, mm-hmm. you know. And it kind of resonated with me, like the whole privacy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I I got a few friends. Uh, there was like five of us. Actually, one of them was a main event World Series bracelet winner, Huck Seed. Uh, He's one of my best friends, and we—I uh, got him and a few three other guys—and we bought a bunch of dark coin. And uh, then we started thinking, like, you know, what should we do to make this to to kind of help advance this 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 cryptocurrency and to kind of make it worth more. And at the time, I knew uh, I had a loose acquaintance acquaintanceship with John Carlo over at one of the founders of Bitfinex. Mm-hmm. And they were the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the planet at the time, having only ever listed Bitcoin and Litecoin uh, since they had launched. And, uh, and I, I approached them and told them, I was like, look, I think these anon cryptocurrencies are going to have a future, uh, and Darkcoin is an interesting one. And so we sold them on the idea, and they, uh, and they ended up listing it in the summer of 2014. And then after that, uh, you know, that was an whole int- like a very interesting experience on its own, like kind of getting that done. And then after that, uh, I approached uh, Evan on Bitcoin Talk, and I said, "Listen, I think uh, I'd like to help you do things with your protocol, kind of advance it." Mm -hmm. And uh, because of what I'd done, like you know, we we got Darkcoin listed on Bitfinex without, like, you know, any relationship with the Darkcoin core developers. And uh, and then I approached them, and because what I'd done, they were—I guess—they took me seriously, and I started helping them behind the scenes. Uh, a lot. And eventually, uh, you know, th- you, they were trying to get a lot of developers to come help uh, build out their protocol, kind of build out the infrastructure, maybe mobile wallets and things. And uh, we eventually thought it was a decent idea to start up a foundation, the Darkcoin Foundation. And Evan asked me to be uh, one of the founding board members, kind of being a representative of the investors. Um, And uh, and then I brought over a friend of mine, Harold Boo, to you know structure the entity, and he ended up being a board member as well. You know, was like a legal representative, and uh, and that's how it got started. And so then behind the scenes, I was you know, I guess at a board level at that point, Mm -hmm. I was helping helping Darkcoin any way that I could. I mean, that was you know very very interesting. It was kind of really was the wild west back then. you know, helped out on the board level with everything from, you know, pushing the rebrand from Darkcoin to Dash, uh, to uh, one crazy story that nobody knows, that very few people know about is we uh, we acquired a coin called Dashcoin mm-hmm. uh, because um, when we uh, when when we were looking to rebrand from Darkcoin to Dash, and, and this kind of this kind of started because. Uh, Darkcoin had come up with this new functionality called Instant X, and f- you know, instant transactions in 2014 were really interesting. Bitcoin was already suffering from like you know, real latency on the transfers, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was like, wow, this is a feature that might make Darkcoin go mainstream. But I felt like there was you know, a real cap on its upside by it being so associated with the brand Dark, mm-hmm. and we realized you know spoken speaking with at the board level with the other the the board members we realized like dash is a really great name uh you know short for digital cash it kind of sort of like has this implicit connotation of speed Mm -hmm. and uh and so we went and we wanted to rebrand to that and we realized that's like literally a few months prior a debit card company had uh applied for uh, the trademark for a dash debit card in, in the financial space right we're like, oh man, we can't. Even, like, we didn't have any rights to it. We weren't using it by the time they'd applied for it. Uh, we weren't using the, the 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 name, the mark, and we uh, uh, were just trying to. We're stumped. We're like, how do we? How do, how can we rebrand to Dash? And one day, I was on Coin Market Cap, and I typed in Dash, and it autofilled Dash Coin, mm-hmm. right? And then I noticed that there was this token that was this coin that was it was the market cap was fifteen thousand dollars. It was a dead coin, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And they had launched this thing maybe like a year and a half prior, which was early enough that it had, you know, it was a global protocol and that that there were some rights, that, IP rights that it was entitled to. And so we reached out to the core dev of Dashcoin who happened to, through Bitcoin talk, who happened to respond back to us. And uh, uh, and we kind of did it, like we had a, I had a friend do it, so they didn't know it was coming from Darkcoin and this guy wouldn't demand a bunch of money. And so we basically kind of, worked with him to see if he was open open to selling us Dashcoin, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. And 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 we basically decided that, you know, we pay him a, a set amount. I don't remember how much it was. It was a small amount to get control of uh, the GitHub repository. And then we broadcast through Bitcoin Talk, you know, that we were going to put out a, uh, a buy wall uh, on one of the exchanges where it was traded. And anybody who held Dashcoin could sell their Dash at a, their Dashcoin at a certain price, mm-hmm. and we essentially and we had like attorneys involved and everything. We and we we acquired one open source project, acquired another open source project, and then we took that 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 evidence of that and successfully contested the trademark application mm-hmm. by this financial institution trying to launch this Dash debit card, right? And then we negotiated a coexist agreement with them, where they had the debit card space for the term Dash. And we had the rest of the world. And that was, uh, you know, like I said, it was like the Wild West back then. Like, we were just like, yeah, yeah. how do we move things forward? Like, what do we do? And so this this is one of the things that I was like, I kind of uh, helped put together the team and kind of spearheaded that effort to acquire uh, Dashcoin. And it was a, you know, that was a lot of, that was a lot of fun. It was like, a, you know, I feel like you could have been a lot more creative back then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and then... Um Talk a little bit about the Dash Foundation, governance, like how you guys really kind of stepped into um, what I think, you know, definitely you would argue was a um, very unique experiment in governance and and how, um, you know, maybe a glimpse into the future almost.
1: Yeah. So um, Dash is governance. Uh, So we uh, there was. One of the, one of the, remember there's five of us that got heavily invested in Darkcoin. And one of them was a friend of mine out of England named, named Richard. And uh, he held a, a of, the, of, the, of our group, he held like the lion's share of the position. He held mm-hmm. for, like 85% of the position. And one, like we started thinking about how do we, what can we do to help build out the infrastructure? Dash, Darkcoin at that time needed like you know, mobile wallets, needed to get listed on exchanges. There was all this kind of stuff that it needed to advance uh uh the ecosystem that that wasn't really going to make a profit (laughs) Mm -hmm. right and so we were like how do we how do we kind of advance things and so originally we were going to start an incubator that was dark coin only projects kind Mm -hmm. of like what consensus did with ethereum Mm -hmm. and we were going to call it protoculture right and richard like i said who who held the majority position in our group was like you know like this isn't fair it's basically me paying for all these projects that aren't going to make any money and all these other token holders are going to benefit from that. And, you know, and so there's this like, sort of like, uh, uh, disproportionate kind of like, uh, you know, risk reward going on. And, uh, uh, he and I would get together uh, at the time he was in LA for, you know, for that year, he and I would get together every couple of weeks and, uh, uh, one time we met up in uh, Pasadena, and he says to me, "He's like, hey, I, I've got this interesting idea. He's like, I think if you take a portion of the mining rewards, a percentage of it, like you can you can turn it into a fund, and then like we can figure out a way to like use these funds, and everybody is essentially paying for the build out of the infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? And so at that lunch, we realized like, well, maybe we can get like you know the token holders to vote on use of those funds and sort of like you know leverage wisdom of the crowds, mm-hmm. you know." Actually, in, in hindsight, Bitcoin back then had, <laughs> didn't have that many people following, but, but uh, uh, so the crowd was still pretty small. But so we, were, I proposed it to Evan in December of 2014, the sort of idea of redirecting the mining rewards to to uh, fund um, businesses or people that propose businesses. To build out the infrastructure, and Evan loved the idea, and he he was like, "Oh, we can get the master nodes because you know, it's a masternode network to you know ev- people evidence a thousand that they owned a thousand tokens to vote on these things." And so, I mean, look, this to, to their credit, like this, like Richard and I just sort of spawned this idea, uh, but they just took it and ran with it, mm-hmm. and the guys at Dash, they like they ran fast too. Evan and Fernando, who's on, also on the board of directors at Dash Foundation, Darkcoin Foundation, uh, Evan and, and Fernando worked. And they, they, they released a white paper, I believe, in like March of 2015 called Decentralized Governance by Blockchain. Um, and then by August of 2015, they had this voting platform and a forum where you could propose um, any project that would advance the, the Darkcoin or Dash ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they decided they were going to redirect 10% of the mining rewards towards this. And they'd launched it. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, in hindsight, it was like uh, it was amazing that, that, you know, this protocol was already listed on Bitfinex, the mm-hmm. biggest exchange in the world. It was amazing that, that we were willing to take the leap on this experiment because nobody had ever done anything like this prior right and we had a lot of discussion behind the scenes of like do we really want to give like the keys of the card to the token holders mm-hmm. you know what if they just vote us off a cliff right and uh and and you know richard of our group held a lot of masternodes and evan held a lot of masternodes and they held a big enough percentage between the both of them that they were that they were comfortable um uh you know we've, we had confidence that any bad ideas, we would be able to kind of like, you know, vote them down. Mm -hmm. Right. And so people back then, when we launched that platform to some degree, they were correct. They accused us of being centralized in the voting. Right. Mm -hmm. But in hindsight, looking back on it, like if that wasn't the case, we might, we probably would have never taken this risk, this leap of faith in in, in doing this. Right. Uh, We sort of had like a backstop. We knew like any bad idea we could vote down. And so, and, and then and then the first month it launched in August of 2015, it might have been September 2015, I think the monthly budget was like $13,000. It was really modest. I mean, they worked eight months to build this thing. at a $13,000 monthly, monthly budget. They voted, I, I believe they voted on having another developer work on advancing the protocol with them, right? And then next month, a little bit more money, you know, because it's a, it's a, it's a, it, the, the way it works, the way the, way the governance and treasury system works at Dash is that, uh, um, you know, it's a function of the price of the token, and so if the price of the token goes up the next month, um, you know, you have more funds to kind of like put towards projects. So it sort of created this feedback loop. Mm-hmm. You know, people would propose projects that might material, like that might make some material advancement in the ecosystem. Those projects get funded, the markets respond, the price goes up, you get more money for the next month. Now you can have even more projects mm-hmm. that get funded. And uh, um, how do
0: you, how do you think that the ecosystem fund performed so far? Like, wh- like, if you had to give yourself a grade, right? A plus, B minus, where, where do you think it falls in there? I would say it's like an A minus. A minus? Well, yeah. h- how, like, walk through how you think
1: about it. Yeah, so so August 2015 or September 2015, $13,000 month monthly budget, right? Mm-hmm. The price of Dash, if I remember correctly, was like, the volume was atrophying prior, mm-hmm. prior to launching this platform. Uh, you know, it, the price was near its lows. I think it was might have been like two dollars at at the time, maybe even less, a dollar fifty. And uh, and we were really worried about the protocol, right? And then they launched the governance treasury platform, and it's sort of like uh, uh, it was sort of like this this honey in the pot that mm-hmm. started bringing developers to be like take notice, and be like, hey, I can propose a project, and maybe it'll get funded, and I can do interesting stuff in blockchain funded by somebody else to advance this. Protocol that I'm passionate about. Yep. Right. Four months into it, I believe it might have been uh, January of 2016, is when I started noticing the volume of Dash kind of like picking up. Price started picking up a little bit. Real developers started showing up, making proposals. It wasn't like, you know, hokey proposals trying to, you know, yep. get a few thousand dollars. Uh, the budget was getting, it was increasing. Uh, in January of 2018, right, the monthly budget, the monthly budget. Was nine million dollars, so it went from a thirteen thousand dollar month, the monthly budget to a nine million dollar a month budget at mm-hmm. the peak of the market, right? And what it what I realized is like it, that feedback loop was real in a bull market. It kept like you know, and 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 they were able to you know get exchange listings, able to like have you know marketing real marketing campaigns that were coming out of it. And I think a lot of people were wondering how Dash was like you know had so much prominence. Uh, in the space and it was really this this engine uh that that kind of pushed it was like the governance and treasury system and so uh um so i was you know this was what we hoped you know would kind of happen right and and what was really funny is that Remember in the beginning, I was saying it sort of felt centralized because a couple mm-hmm. of people had all these tokens. Well, Richard, you know, my my business partner, you know, is a responsible investor, and as like the price of Dash was going from two dollars to like you know, eventually hit like fifteen hundred, I think, or some stupid amount, like some really really high amount. Um, he was he was divesting himself of the majority of his position. He, he ended mm-hmm. up divesting himself of ninety percent of his position, and it really did become a platform. That was controlled by the crowd it was Mm -hmm. no longer like these you know two guys that that swayed a lot of the vote were able to and that was that was i think what was really was really interesting because you have this sort of uh uh you know uh benevolent like uh you know few that you know they had the best and they they were their interests were aligned with everyone else they wanted the price to go up and then you know eventually they, they they divested themselves recirculated the coins into the ecosystem um and what was really interesting to me about Dash is uh, came from like the experience at the board level. I think at one point after this voting system got up and running, originally it was to like fund projects.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think there was a vote. It was a, some trivial vote. It was might have been for like when we were rebranding from Darkcoin to Dash, a vote on like which logo to use, and we, we were like, why don't we put it to the token holders to decide? Yep. Right. And that was like sort of like another that was my second aha moment in crypto the first one being when like that money my 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 poker Bitcoin poker money moved mm-hmm. within 48 hours to an, a big financial institution the second one was when we transferred a vote from the board level to the token holders even though it was a trivial uh, uh, proposal um, I realized like wow this is really interesting because this is like you know, When you're dealing with an asset that was very valuable and you have a small group of people that control it you're not usually shifting that power from this you know small inner circle to the middle it's usually the opposite they're leveraging their position Mm -hmm. to gain more power and more control and gain more wealth for themselves and what started happening over time like we started kind of like you know moving more and more decisions over to the token holders. And that's when I started, I caught a glimpse of like the real power of like uh, these trustless networks uh, when coupled with voting systems. And I started, you know, kind of daydreaming about like, you know, the future, like.
0: Well, and so how do you go from Dash to Blockfolio, right? Because as you start kind of thinking about in the future and kind of where this whole industry is going, obviously at some point you say, um, you know, I want to actually go build a company right which became mm. blockfolio. What what was that transition
1: like uh, so it started i mean dash kind of contributed to it mm-hmm. right i mean i was investing in you know many different cryptocurrencies in 2014 and uh uh it was sort of like a, you know i, I might have had like you know been invested in like 10 or 15 different different projects at that time and like I said, the landscape back then was totally different. There was only 200 cryptocurrencies, and 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 back then, all the Bitcoin, uh, all, all the all the portfolio tracking apps back then, with the exception of maybe two or three, were Bitcoin only. Mm-hmm. And so we were just found ourselves as we made more and more investments, Dash being one of them, just like having to log in, keep updating a spreadsheet, log into different exchanges, update a spreadsheet. It was a very painful process. It's a very painful ritual every morning, mm-hmm. right? and uh, my two co-founders and I were just like there's got to be a better way and so we kind of got together and decided to to build Blockfolio. We wanted to create a portfolio tracking app that listed every cryptocurrency on every exchange. And and like I said back then there was like you know 200 of them and and all these other ones that did uh, that, that tracked more than just Bitcoin, maybe had like a dozen of the of the, of the cryptocurrencies. It just wasn't enough to like solve solve the problem that existed. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's, you know, uh, uh, investing in altcoins like Dash. I started exploring everything and that eventually led to us creating Blockfolio to kind of scratch our own itch.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That was really the original intent behind it.
0: And, and so what was the original product? Was it literally just you could track your portfolio of, you know, tokens, Bitcoin or other Or was there other elements to the
1: product at that point? So, yeah, we, we, um, let me see here. It was, we just wanted to, what I wanted was like, I want to be able to like open up the app, see a mirror of all my positions on all different exchanges and within a split second, just see what my total portfolio balance was. Yep. Right. And we, we, um, we added, you know, you know, charts, alerts, New section, different things that we thought might be useful. And we're like, wow, we, we think we can make a business out of this, right? And uh, um, that was it. And we wanted, I think that the thing is, we wanted all, all cryptocurrencies on all exchanges and be able to, you know, within a split second to open it and see how your stuff is doing. And what was uh, really kind of, uh, you know, we didn't, we never expected it to kind of grow the way that it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and at least in the beginning, it didn't grow. It was pretty stale for the first. Couple of years until we launched in 2015 until 2017, it was pretty silent, right? Mm-hmm. But you know about this like this explosion that came in of like interest in you know the cryptocurrency space beyond Bitcoin in 2017. Mm-hmm. We happened to be you know the only professional game in town,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, you know um, in January of 2017, I think we had like 8,000 monthly active users. Mm-hmm. And within 12 months, we went from 8,000 monthly active users to 2.2 million monthly active users, and we never spent a dollar on paid user acquisition in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was uh, that was pretty amazing. Uh, we just got really fortunate to, and we had, I think, pretty decent product instincts, and built this thing that for that we loved, and it turned out that. Everybody else loved using it as well.
0: Absolutely, and now you have actually evolved the product to things like uh, Blockfolio Signal. Maybe talk a little bit about some of the things that you've added since uh, since you originally got started.
1: Yeah, so uh, we what we found is like we had this this really massive user base, uh, and 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 we we noticed that oftentimes the number of people that were following a token on on Blockfolio uh, for a lot of projects was greater than the Twitter followings that they had. And we, we sort of saw, um, this toxic Twitter environment where all the fake giveaways. Mm -hmm. I mean, like Vitalik has to change his name to Vitalik non-giver of ETH. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, all the phishing scams on Slack. And we're like, wow, there's like, you know, having worked at, on helping out Dash early on. I kind of deeply understood both like the infrastructure building and the community building needs that these protocols had. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, wow, like really? I mean, we, we can build this sort of communication channel that's one directional. It's a broadcasting channel that allows token teams to let their token holders know exactly what's going on. And so that's how we came up with the idea of Blockfolio Signal. It was like maybe in the summer of 2017. We launched it in uh, April or May of 2018. And with like you know a couple of dozen projects piloting the program, uh, you know Decred was one of the early ones. Uh, you know we ended up getting uh, Zcash, Monero, a few others, and uh, and and they would, you know, broadcast announcements uh, to their token holders uh, through our app. And so the way it works is you know, quickly go over it is like we created this personalized feed based on what's in your portfolio. And so anytime somebody broadcasts an announcement, if you happen to hold that token in your portfolio, it would show up in this feed, which is similar to like a Facebook feed or a LinkedIn feed. Uh, and you could just get the most important announcements that that these protocols wanted to to update you with. And uh, uh, now it's grown, like I think we have close to 350 token teams broadcasting.
0: Wow. Uh, on- and, and how many people are using that product versus maybe some of the other, um, like just the portfolio
1: tracking? Like what's the disparity? Oh, I would say probably yeah, for an estimation, maybe like 20% of our users, 25%. I mean, it's, uh, uh, that are using it, I think maybe on a daily basis, mm-hmm. something It's pretty, it's it's a lot, it, yeah, it, it, it feels like it, it, it worked out really well. I think, uh, um,
0: and you guys are also doing some stuff around like user privacy and, and kind of things that are most likely not the best thing to do for the bottom line meaning that you're sacrificing revenue or profits for uh, optimizing for that user privacy maybe talk a
1: little bit about that so yeah so uh um at at blockfolio we um early on there were a couple decisions we made and uh, uh one of them is um you know we never we've never asked for any personal identifiable information we don't ask for anybody's name we don't make them put in an email we don't you know they're not like linking to Facebook accounts uh, we don't ask for credit card information uh, we don't we, we want if somebody wants to use it in a completely private way that they can right and uh, uh, you know we we also um, you know I think we we've we've never touched tokens like we don't you know p- uh, coming up with a, the massive user base that we had people were like why don't you create like and exchange services and take fees and stuff like that and and i'm sure a lot of people realize like once you start doing sort of, sort of like you know taking cust- custody of tokens or start touching them like there's regulatory burden that comes with it mm-hmm. right and so these are two very key decisions that we made very early on that we were like we just want to be data and in information let people kind of like keep track of what's happening in their crypto investments mm-hmm. right and uh um we were uh and, and also like you know like Blockfolio's DNA like I mean I was you know like I said a founding board member of the first you know anon cryptocurrency in the space mm-hmm. like I I you know privacy uh you know was was very important to me and uh and 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 so we made some steps you know, like I said we could have created an exchange made probably we turned away millions of dollars uh you know I would imagine in revenue that we could made making other choices but we uh we wanted to create this really safe platform for people and I think today we realize that like it's really paid off because in the last year we've actually had two federal subpoenas. Uh, mm-hmm. People uh, like you know the Fed coming and asking for portfolio data and then some individual users. And uh, how do you guys handle that? Well, our attorneys like responded and based upon like their request, like it was literally an impossibility for us to give them the information that they wanted. And we basically kind of Explain ex- that. explained that to them how like our system was designed. How we don't ask for personal identifiable information. And both times they dropped uh, the subpoenas. Right. So, uh, and I think, I think that kind of reflects like decisions that we made early on and look, we're going to cooperate with government agencies, like if we can. Mm -hmm. Right. But we made some decisions early on kind of like, you know, that, that allowed us to like, this
0: is is a whole like privacy by design, right? Where essentially what you say is, um, If we have this information, there are a whole host of different ways that it can be used uh, either internally or externally for good and bad. Mm -hmm. And if we choose today to optimize for the privacy of our users, we are understanding that it may make it harder for us to, you know, do growth hacking and that type of stuff. But also um, it will sidestep the exact issue you just described. Yeah. Right. Where there's a subpoena, uh, or or you, and there's an internal employee who's tempted to do something, a security breach, all this stuff. You basically just com- it. It doesn't even matter if it happens around the data because you don't have the data. Exactly.
1: It's like you can't give away what you don't have, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and and so uh, or or that you know, uh, the way it's designed, it's just like an impossibility based on the request. And so and and that, and that, and that's the thing. Like I think uh, I think what's interesting is like people oftentimes think that like uh, you know complying with uh you know government requests or government regulation is like at odds with privacy right and of course and i think and i think we're, we're like well we realized like we want to create something private, but yet totally be compliant about everything. Mm-hmm. And I think like, you know, getting those subpoenas dropped was I mean, I, I was pretty happy because I was like, wow, I mean it's like it worked. It worked. There's these steps that we're taking. And I think it's gonna be interesting. I think, uh, you know, as this ecosystem advances.
0: Do you think you can continue to build a business where portfolio tracking is uh, segmented away from custody? And the exchanges, right? So you talked about a lot of people previously have said, "Hey, why don't you build an exchange? Why don't you do custody? Kind of, you know, add on services or, or go deeper with your relationship with those users." Do you think you can continue to scale without going into that, or, or how do you kind of think about, let's yeah. say, custody and, and portfolio tracking?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't. You know, i I wanted, I wanted to stay away from custody. Uh, you know, I, th- I felt like it was a. Uh, it allows us to kind of operate, be more nimble, uh, have mm-hmm. less regulatory burden, right? Uh, but I think, I think, yes, we can. I mean, I think we're, we're identifying services that we can build. And, and so, you know, when we launched Blockfolio Signal and getting, you know, this dashboard that 300-plus token teams are broadcasting through, uh, we realized that we, we shifted Blockfolio from being this, like, portfolio tracking app that connected just speculators with exchange information mm-hmm. to being a network where we're connecting, like, the major segments of the industry, the token teams, the speculators, the exchanges, and we realized through this dashboard, like, wow, we're going to be able to, like, layer on services beyond just a communication platform for token teams that are going to be very valuable to them, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're identifying, like, we're talking to the token teams all the time, identifying, uh, uh, you know, uh, different features that will help them better service their token economies and, 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 and kind of, like... Uh, um, leverage that proximity we're, give, we're, we're creating between them and their users. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 we believe that some of these features will be able to impact their token economies by maybe tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars for all we know. And then these are the type of things that we think that we can charge for and start, you know, like I said, kind of shift Blockfolio from a free-to-use app to like a real kind of like viable business. And uh, and so that's kind of like 2019 where we're really focused at Blockfolio is kind of like, you know, these services that we want to build out for a... Uh, for token projects, some of them, you know, would be like, uh, you know, polling services, um, you know, allow them to poll people who actually hold their token.
0: You're essentially creating a communication platform for the tokens and the projects to um, maybe have higher signal or you know, no pun intended um, conversations, uh, really get actionable insights out of um, and almost ensure that. Uh, those teams have—I'll call it kind of a landing page for communication, right? If they can point people there and say, "Look, this is where we're going to post updates. This is where we're going to do stuff." Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of value to the teams. There's a lot of value to the uh, ecosystem that they're trying to communicate with, and then obviously a lot of value to you guys.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like we we uh, kind of we have this philosophy of blockfolio, which like it's like we're, we we want to be like user first and ecosystem first, like put mm-hmm. uh, put them ahead of like our kind of like short term. Yep. Uh, uh, desires, right? And uh, and and we've kind of like uh, I think really, you know, held true to that since the beginning of Blockfolio. Even in that the ICO craze, that 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 happened in 2017. I mean, we we ran three different ads in Blockfolio from you know June of 2017 to uh, February 2018. And and even though we ran three ads, we were hit up by probably. 200 projects in the space wanted mm-hmm. to like throw money at us to like do these ICO ads and like I felt a lot of these were, were, were malintended like they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're you know and I didn't really believe in the projects and, and so like we were trying to protect our users and we this is not an exaggeration during that time frame like we turned away 20 million dollars plus in ad revenue ICO ad revenue um, you know because we wanted to, to to put our users first do what was right for our users, for the ecosystem. And so kind of like everything we've done at Blockfolio, I think, is uh, has been like that. We've taken like slow calculated steps. How do we, you know, connect different parties in the ecosystem? How do yeah. we do it for the benefit of the ecosystem? Sort of in a, 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 you know, in a private way, in a fair way. A lot of the ethos that I kind of learned during my time being on the board of directors of, of Dash Foundation, you know, it like it comes over as it, it reflects in, in Blockfolio as well. For sure. Um, before
0: we wrap up, I always do a, a rapid fire set of questions. Um, so what do you think is your most controversial thought in crypto? Oh,
2: man.
0: <laughs> He's taking a, a a sip of coffee there, I think, to uh, to prepare for this one.
1: Yeah, the most controversial thought in crypto?
0: Yeah, like what, what do you believe that the, that a high majority of other people would disagree with you on?
1: Would disagree with me on? Uh, like, uh, man, that's a really tough question. Uh, it depends on the day of the week that you talk to me. Uh, uh, yeah. Sorry for taking so long. I I would say, uh, um, You know, sometimes I I wonder, um, um, sometimes I worry about Bitcoin. Okay. Why? Because it's 2019 and I still can't buy a slice of pizza with it down the street at my favorite. Do you think that's a problem? Uh, there, there are things I love. Uh, Well, it it, is Bitcoin going to be digital money. I don't. I don't know if that if that's gonna be the case. You're not as
0: confident in that.
1: No, but I mean but but like I said, Bitcoin is gonna be like switch all into your pocket. It's found a different like purpose in my in my mind, you know, than than I originally thought. And so it's evolved. Uh, it's evolved, yeah. And so uh sometimes Sometimes I worry. I know that you're like a crazy Bitcoin maximalist. This, <laughs> I, this is actually listen, part of the reason why I, I wanted to stay. like. Not I, I'm
0: actually not. I, I'm not a maximalist. Oh, yeah? Right. So I am. Uh, I am in the Bitcoin is very, 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 very important. And okay. we are probably underestimate. We're more likely to be underestimating the impact it will have than overestimating it. Um, but with all that said, I. Uh, I think that there's a bunch of, like, decentralized finance stuff that's super interesting. I think that, you know, every stock bond, currency commodity is going to be tokenized, right? All that kind of stuff is, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, violates the maximalist uh, viewpoint. (laughs) Um, But but I do think that uh, from a currency standpoint, Bitcoin is far and away the winner and going to dominate.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I think, like, I actually think the world is going to be completely tokenized Mm -hmm. in the future. I think right now, some of my ideas, like, I think uh, data ownership is unlocked by blockchain. Uh, You know, there's going to be a slow shift over the next 20 years to, like, people are going to, like, you know, be patroning platforms where they're going to have ownership and control of their data. I think uh, blockchain-based voting systems are going to be enormous. I think people are going to be, you know, having their condominium titles on on, uh, ERC-721 non-fungible tokens that are stored in, like, you know... Uh, custodial uh, services that are insured and regulated. I mean, I think uh, you know. To between me and you, you, you that might not be that controversial. But if I go hang out with my parents' friends and I tell them this, they're going to look at me like I'm insane. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, what, what's uh, the one uh,
0: regulation that you would change if you could
1: change one or improve it? Uh, regulation. Uh, yeah, I, I would say. I you know, I don't know. I'm not. Not not in the Uh, regulation. What what do you think the most important company in crypto is other than Blockfolio? (laughs) I I don't know if we're the most important company. Maybe one day we can grow to be that. But uh uh I I would say um you know you know um some of the pioneering ones that I think, you know, is 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 kind of like by the by the by, the rules by the book that like Coinbase, like their approach, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they've they've definitely like pushed things forward, uh, awareness. Yep. Uh, you know, starting to kind of like you know move beyond just Bitcoin and some of the other cryptocurrencies. But like, I mean, think about I, I, I I'm not 100 positive about this, but sometimes like if I imagine like what if Coinbase didn't exist in crypto, mm-hmm. sort of like looking at it from that perspective. If this come if this specific company didn't exist how far back would we be yeah pretty far i think with coinbase we'd probably be pretty far back Mm -hmm. uh you know uh more so than other exchanges and i think i think part of it is because they've pushed so much in 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 the united states and and it seems like
0: uh for sure yeah what uh what's the most important book you've ever read
1: hmm Oh, um, fortune's formula. Why? Um, I kind of went into the whole history of like calculated risk, uh, you know, with like, you know, the Kelly formula, like John Kelly, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like some of the work that people were doing at, uh, at, uh, at at and labs. Um, you know, it kind of, uh, yeah, it was just like learning about, uh, uh, you know, I guess, I guess, uh, uh you know, an approach, like basically realizing that like, you know, the importance of like math and probability and everything. And like, you know, trying to <laughs> find important.
0: Yeah. Speaking to f- of math and probability, what's the probabilities that aliens, aliens exist super high. I mean, uh, over under 70% over, over 90. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. In my, in my opinion, I mean, like, I think, uh, I think, uh, uh, I'm a 99.9%. I'm, Way up there with you, because I mean, like, I mean, it's like, you know, the universe is like infinitely large. Right. And there's this this environment that existed here for like life to spontaneously happen has happened elsewhere. Aliens do exist. Right. And uh, I like it. You're like a a long Bitcoin, short alien deniers. (laughs) I'm like a long alien, short humans. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah. So they they totally exist. I mean, uh, yeah, I I would say I I think it's almost a certainty, Uh, you know, and I I would think uh, I I think it's everybody thinks of like scary aliens. I'm like more of maybe they're like better than us.
0: Uh, my whole thing is like, what if they show up, they just want to grab a beer. All right. Right. Like what, they don't have to come. What was what it? Uh, independence day. They're like show up and they shooting up the white house and, you know, doing all the crazy stuff. Like what if they just want to come hang?
1: I mean, maybe they're more realistic in their outlook of the universe and they don't like try to create these like fancy things and this illusion, like they're not apes. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I end each uh, episode letting you ask me one question. What, uh, what one question do you have for me?
1: Um, Oh,
0: man you're the only person who's
1: thought about it this is good i don't know man It's i'm not i'm not i'm a little slower than everyone else um no um i don't know i mean my the kind of questions i would ask you would be like um I don't know what it what is like your vision of like the crypto future like 20 30 years from now like how do you what, what what do you think is so yeah okay here's a quick question like if you had a if you look at like uh, the internet right and like back in 1999 nobody knew that they'd be able to like you, you, you could like couple uh, you know the internet with mobile and and GPS and end up uber and it's gonna like change the planet right it's gonna reduce a bunch of deaths mm-hmm. because people don't drunk drive anymore as much or they shouldn't um, um what if you, you know, in your daydreams, what are some crazy ideas that you've been like, wow, like blockchain's gonna unlock this that nobody's thought of and it's just gonna be like
0: nuts. Right. My core thesis, and I say it probably more articulate than the extreme view that I actually hold, is every stock bond currency commodity will be digitized and it lays the foundation for an automated world. And I think that what you're talking about, like ooh, the people who originally saw Uber were like, "Oh, you can go take out the taxi industry. The taxi industry's you know X billions of dollars. uh That's you know an okay size market, mm-hmm. right?" What they actually ended up doing was they took market share from the taxi industry, but also drastically expanded the addressable market, mm-hmm. right? They, they all these people who you know used to drive their own cars also became Uber riders, mm-hmm. and so. I think that's really interesting. Um, we had uh, Murad on the podcast and he talked about, you know, the monetary supply globally is like I don't know, $85 trillion or whatever. He thinks it could expand to $150 trillion and steal market share back from other store value assets. So our you know, real estate, etc. I think that's a pretty wild idea that I probably have more confidence in than most would want to admit. But the one that I think is really big uh, and disrupts even bigger markets than money is this idea of machine to machine transactions happening all day long, every day, every single thing you do. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, um, you know, th- there's some really wild things that you can think of, uh, but they boil down to simple concepts. So like pay as you go services, right. Um, everything from, uh, if you're listening to Spotify and every minute you listen to, it, you pay a penny, right. And so over, you know, the power users pay met some up to some cap, the people who don't use it at all this month, don't pay anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's some kind of more pro pro rata type, uh, payments. Um, you can see it in terms of taxes, right? Well, why don't I just pay for what i use and so if i drive down the road i'll pay you Mm -hmm. right if i don't drive down the road i don't want to pay for that road right um and so you know there's a lot of complexities in there and like well what if i don't drive down the road but the fire truck that comes to put the fire out at my house drives down the road should i pay for that you know Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff so some of this is like pipe dream stuff today because we just don't know enough Mm -hmm. um but but i do think that uh this idea of um the internet being a borderless nation and it going to be run by or governed by machines, Um, the digitization of value that will be placed in there I think is really important. Um, And it feels to me like people probably knew the internet was important, Mm -hmm. but didn't know exactly how, right? That's kind of how I feel about that avenue of all of this. It's just like, it feels pretty damn important that every stock, bond, currency, commodity is digitized, right? And there's some automation going on. Mm how that plays out where will be the you know the the quote-unquote killer apps right or killer use cases if i knew the answers we'd be putting all our money there
1: (laughs) like we're just getting a taste of the automation right now is what you're saying like it's going to be crazy like Uh,
0: it's like stupid stuff right like you know is there a world where um You can walk down the street and that generates data that then you can sell to a pharmaceutical company in an anonymized, aggregated fashion, and you get paid some currency for that. And that currency you can then use at the store as long as you buy healthy food. Yeah. Right? Right. And all of it is you literally walk down the street, walk into the store, grab something and walk out and you don't go anywhere near a cash register, blah, blah, whatever. Like I have no clue how you realistic the, you, you that is. You pull out
1: cash to buy your cheeseburger, but you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, D- so basically digi- digitize like the
0: health food that you. Per- perfect you example, right? <laughs> Could you in- drastically increase the friction for buying unhealthy food, but rather than trying to. Increase the friction. What you do is you decrease the friction to buying healthy food, Mm -hmm. and therefore there's a very there's a very black and white difference between when I buy healthy food, it's much easier than when I try to buy unhealthy food. And so if I want to go through the friction of buying the unhealthy food, I can. But you'll you'll slowly change people's habits because they'll go the path of least resistance. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean like you're you're getting into like yeah some interesting. We go for we go for hours on the weird stuff. (laughs) Yeah, the data the data ownership stuff is like really interesting. Like in what you were saying about generating income from like from that like like one of that was actually to circle back one of the crazy ideas that's I think like data ownership is gonna unlock a basic universal income that people generate because of uh, the data that they they generate just doing their normal everyday things and being tracked for it
0: I've talked about this a bunch the idea of uh, UBI is uh, uh, a little hard for me to wrap my head around in terms of why we would create something like that but the idea that um, I rent my time Mm -hmm. Right? Um, As a human for compensation, or I rent my mind for Mm -hmm. compensation uh i probably will rent my data for compensation in Mm -hmm. the future and therefore work looks different right and compensation looks different and so so i'm on board with you there um listen this has been fantastic i really appreciate you uh you coming and uh i think that uh, what you guys are building is pretty interesting and and it's obviously growing pretty quickly so uh good luck to you we're cheering for you and uh, we'd love to have you back at some point
1: yeah anthony thanks so much for the time it's been been a pleasure absolutely
0: All right, guys, that was an awesome episode. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoyed it. Before we go, I want to remind you that this episode was brought to you by The Grove, a full-service creative and design agency that has worked with companies like Block, Chamber of Digital Commerce, AAA, and the American Red Cross. You can check out more of their work at thegrove.co backslash pomp. Again, that's .co, not .com. It's thegrove.co backslash Pomp. Go ahead over there, check it out, and let them know that we're there by crashing their servers. Hey everyone, Pomp here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I
2: appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.